This is To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, a Learn and Sing production. And this is a podcast about great Irish albums. It's named after a My Bloody Valentine song. If you go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter, you'll find links to episode notes and lots of further information on all of the albums we've covered so far. So that's episodes on Whipping Boy, Toasted Heretic, The Fatima Mansions, Blue in Heaven, Into Paradise, Michael O'Shea, The Stars of Heaven, Revelino, and The Wormholes. I want to thank everyone who's listened to the podcast and, of course, my thanks to all the artists who've shared stories with me. And it was a lovely surprise when the Irish Examiner recently named To Hear Knows When one of their best new Irish podcasts of 2021. At the end of this episode, you'll hear a promo for the next couple of episodes, and that's in the form of a pop quiz intros round. Now, this 10th episode focuses on Room to Roam, by the Waterboys. While touring Fisherman's Blues, the four-piece Waterboys of Mike Scott, Steve Wickham, Anto Thistlewaite and Trevor Hutchinson was augmented by Sharon Shannon, Colin Blakey and Noel Bridgman. And it was that seven-piece lineup, the Magnificent Seven as Noel Bridgman named them, that recorded the fifth Waterboys album, Room to Rum. After touring throughout 1989, the band returned to Spittlehouse in Galway, where the last sessions for Fisherman's Blues had been finished. And over a period of four months in early 1990, the band recorded the album. Now, an earlier episode focused on Viva Dead Ponies, another great 1990 album. And while I proudly wore my Fatima Mansion's Keep Music Evil t-shirt in the early 90s, I drew a line at their Raggle Taggle Nine Danka t-shirt. Whatever about Cahill's antics with a Virgin Mary-shaped shampoo bottle in front of U2's audience in Milan, to me it was the Raggle Taggle Nine Danka t-shirt that was sacrilegious. You see, my brother had introduced me to the big music. We gorged on those early albums. Fisherman's Blues had sent us into a state of near-religious frenzy and Room to Rome was the first CD we had. I was down with the raggle-taggle gypsies. Room to Rome might have been maligned by the UK music press, but it was awarded five stars in my world. For this episode, I've also solicited recollections from Jim O'Mahony and Podrick Collins, two old friends of mine who have strong memories of witnessing the Magnificent Seven lineup of the Waterboys on that 1989 tour. So here we go. To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, Episode 10, Room to Roam by the Waterboys. It's my great pleasure to welcome Mike Scott. Mike, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And there's going to be some langer now on social media that's going to start saying to me, the Waterboys, that's not an Irish album, Paul. Let's put the naysayer straight straight away. Room to Roam is the Irish Waterboys album. Well, it's actually one of many Irish Waterboys albums. Uh, most of the band was Irish at the time. I think we probably had more Irish members than the Pogues or U2. It was recorded and written in Ireland. Yep. My brother got a CD player 
in October 1990. Mm. And the first CD we had was Room to Roam. Okay. It was the only CD we had for, I think, until Christmas that year. CDs, <laughs> CDs were expensive. <laughs> I didn't get to see this band, Mike. The band I got to see was late 1990. So it would have been a few months after Room to Roam. Post Room to Roam band, yeah. That was Cork City Hall around mm-hmm. Christmas time, 1990. Now, that was a very different band. So... Can we go back maybe late 88? You played two big gigs in Galway. All the UK music press are over there. Alan Jones from the Melody Makers, Stuart Bailey from the NME, they're all at that gig. In the first week of 1989, the UK music press are fawning over themselves at the Waterboys. But then you started to put together a very different band very soon after that, really, wasn't it? Yeah. It was a gentler band. Yeah, but you see, from the perspective of the British music press, we go out of their their perception for a few months and then suddenly when we return, we're different. So to them, it's like it's a blink of an eye. Suddenly they see us at the Glastonbury Festival and I I suppose this would apply to some of the fans as well. Uh, And people who weren't necessarily fans, just observers, they would have seen us in one form and then suddenly they see us in this different sort of rootsier, woodier, gentler form and, and decide they don't like it. I think also it was a, it was just, it was the, the wheel had just turned, I think, and the music press was ready to turn on the water boys. Uh, yeah, I think there was a bit of that. You've spent a lot of lockdown going back over all those live recordings from that whole period yeah, yeah. And, and putting this box set together, The yeah. Magnificent Seven. It's a lovely accompaniment to that fisherman's box that came out, you know. Indeed, yes. In the book, I loved the bit where you said this meeting with Dennis Desmond, where you looked at a map of Ireland. He said something like, Mike, I'm not interested in your art. I want to make some money here. Let's look at gigs outside of Dublin. They're really two separate things, Paul. When when I first met Dennis in 86, way back when This Is The Sea was the album, the first thing he said to me was, I'll tell you now, I'm not interested in your art. I just want to make money out of you. And and I knew where I stood with him and, and we were pals from that moment on. Uh, and it was such a, a, a refreshing change from all the, the music business cunning foxes who would pretend to be my best friend and pretend to be interested in the music and then, you know, rip me off behind my back. Dennis was up front and, and he was cool. But it was a few years later that, that I went to him and I said, look, we want to play Ireland with this new album, Fisherman's Blues Out, but we want to go deep. I want to play all the towns of Ireland. And, and I noticed that the, the, the big bands, U2 and so on, they only play one or two gigs. What can we do to open it up? And that was when we looked at the map. And he had a big map on the wall of his office. He had this office down in, in Kalini overlooking the sea. And he must have been doing well at that point. And, and we, we would go through the map and I'd point at this town and that town and he'd say, oh, well, the majestic ballrooms there. Yeah, maybe we could get, maybe we could do something there. And see, he knew all the towns, he knew all the venues, all, all the histories. And, and the funny thing was after him saying, I just want to make money out of you, he, he humored me and went with me on this strange path of opening up all these old venues where I suppose he did make some money, but he would have made more if he'd put us in Croke Park, which we could also have done if we'd been so minded. So I really, really appreciate him for that. Now, you mentioned the Majestic there in Mallow. I got a few lines here from a good friend of mine, 
Jim O'Mahony, he's, he's a DJ, a brilliant DJ down in Cork, okay? And I told Jim, I knew Jim had been at that gig. So this is what he said to me, Mike. He said, uh, June 10th, 89, a few of us went to Mallow. We'd no tickets. It was myself, Mark Healy. Mark actually does the music for this podcast. And Skoda Drove. I can't remember who else was there. It was absolutely spectacular. Made all the more so because we weren't expecting it to be. It was one of the three greatest gigs I've ever seen. The Virgin Prunes farewell gig in 1982 <laughs> in McGonagall's. The Bunnymen on the Ocean Rain Tour in the SFX. But the Water Boys were something else. Imagine witnessing Dylan's Rolling Thunder review, but in Mallow, of all places. <laughs> it seemed like a bizarre place for them to be playing. But when they walked out on that stage, it all just made complete sense. The place went crazy. They finished the main set with a bang on the ear and then launched into This Land Is Your Land. A load of mandolins up on the majestic stage playing Guthrie. It was just absolutely amazing. There's Jim's recollection of the night from the majestic. Um, I remember it well myself. It was a wild night. There's this amazing photograph in the booklet that shows a big box of live recordings. Yeah. It must have been very strange, was it, going back through those gigs and picking out songs for this box? It, it was very much a, a, a matter-of-fact job of work, Paul. I, I, fortunately, I've got all the set lists from the shows, so I, I was able to go through the dats uh, one by one, knowing what song was coming next. And there were certain songs I wasn't so interested in and then other ones that I really wanted to get. So I was able to speed on to those ones. And 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 also the, that's, the recordings select themselves a bit because some, some shows the sound wouldn't, the sound on the tape wouldn't be good enough to put on a record. So I wouldn't, wouldn't waste any of my time on that one. See, live, live recordings, I explained it in the book actually, that they're, they're very affected by the, the, the kind of venue it is, because a, a, a desk mix is what the sound man is mixing. But you see, if the drums are really loud on the stage or the electric guitar is really loud on the stage, he doesn't have to put much of it in the mix. So when you listen back to the mix, there's not much drums, there's not much guitar. And the best, the best desk mixes from concerts are, are bigger venues where the PA is much louder than the stage. Unfortunately, we, we had some, some very good recordings from places like... Uh, the Wiltern Theatre in Los Angeles, a really big old theatre where we played three nights in 89 on that tour. And a lot of the live music on the box set comes from that because we had, he had a great sound mix and, and the, the PA was so much louder than the stage that the, the volume of things on the stage didn't affect his, low, his live mix. Okay, so another friend of mine, Mike, was at one of those nights. I asked Podrick for a couple of lines. Podrick's a journalist in Sydney now. I'm going to read you this, seeing as you've mentioned that gig in L.A. Podrick says, Monday, October 23rd, 1989, a freezing cold night in Boston, but the Waterboys played the best show I'd ever seen them do. Supposedly, it never rains in Southern California, but it was teeming rain in L.A. on Wednesday, November 8, 89, when I saw the Waterboys play a show that was even better than Boston. I was astonished that there were so many people calling out Irish county names. I thought me and my cousin, Father James Kavanagh, were the only Irish people in L.A. I roared out, up Limerick. <laughs> He then says, right, on Monday, December 18th, 1989, 
I saw the Waterboys for the third time in exactly eight weeks, three concerts, three venues, two continents. Unlike LA, which is 6,000 miles from my home village of Adair, Croom is six miles away. There was an electric party atmosphere. A girl who had sent me a Valentine's Day card when I was 12 was one of the dancers who was brought up on stage. I'd never seen her dance before. The show was better than Boston and L.A. Brilliant. I remember Croom. That was a fantastic night. Croom is a crossroads halfway between Charleville and Limerick. As Podrick says there, about six miles from Adair, the water boys pulling into Croom must have been some sight in 1989. Well, do you know, there were good venues in all these places. The Majestic in, in Malin was brilliant, and Croom was a big community centre. And it must have been about 1,500 people, and the atmosphere was fantastic. The show band circuit, Mike, of course. Yeah. The audiences in those places in Ireland are brilliant. They know music. They're really uh, clued in audience. Uh, and I loved playing for them. Okay, so then early 1990 then. It was like, we need to find a place yeah. where we're going to record this new yeah. band. Yeah. You basically head off on a tour of the country, down to Munster, into West Cork to try and find um, a studio. Yeah, Be, a big house or something. Or a yeah. Bar. You end up in doing Queen with the Begleys. Um, I couldn't believe it when I saw it in the book, Mike. You mentioned the Roundy House. I stay every summer down in, in Balanagal. So every year I stare up at that house, look, <laughs> looking out over the Truer Drafurica behind it. I was going, oh, my God, room to roam could have been done here. That's extraordinary. <laughs> but you say in the book that house was too small. Yeah, more or less all the places we went to were too small. You know, we were a seven-piece band, so it needed a lot of space. And we, we generally played live in the studio. We wanted to play all at the same time. And then you need a control room and, and a hangout space. Uh, the places we looked at were too small. So, so that's why we ended up back at Spittle House where we'd done some of Fisherman's Blues. Back to Spittle then. A couple of months in early 1990, I think, really. We were four months in Spittle. Yeah. And you brought over, what was his name? Um, Harry Beckett. Beckett. Harry Muscle Beckett. Shoals. Muscle Shoals. Yeah, great keyboard player and producer. And, and for me, he's big... Uh, the big plus was that he'd done Slow Train Coming by Bob Dylan, which was a really fantastic sounding album. And he played the keyboards on it too. He was brilliant. And he used to sit in on jams with us as well at Spittle House. What did he make of Galway? What did he make of Connemara? Well, he, he's, he's from, from the American South and he lived in Nashville and he was used to all his creature comforts, you know, and, and, and here he was finding himself in a cottage in Connemara with no phone two miles from the nearest shop. And I must say, he took his privations in fairly good humour. But as soon as he found where there was a phone, that's where he would go every mealtime to keep in touch with his, his music biz mates in LA and Nashville. Uh, and and I, think, I think it was tough for him, really. Did you get on, as in, did your visions for the records come together in terms of how this was going to be recorded? Well, do you know, at first, Barry got us to change the way that we played in the studio. We, we were used to playing all, all together, and I would sing live. Uh, and he didn't think that the, the sound was quite um, organised enough. He didn't think that the top-line players were listening to what each other was doing and people were playing notes that were clashing and so on. So he sent uh, Sharon, Steve, Colin and Anto back to their rented bungalow in Spiddle to practice their parts. 
and he recorded me and the bass and drums, Trevor and Noel, as a, a little mini band. So most of the record was done like that. And then the other four would come in and we'd overdub them, either one by one or, or sometimes even in a group of four to keep a bit of a live feel. And that was Barry's main main contribution to the sessions. Although actually his other contribution was the sound. He was marvelous at directing the engineer to get a, a lush sound. Uh, and that was great. Uh, probably the best sound I'd ever heard in a studio. And that's that's all his years of muscle shows and that's yeah. experience. But in the end, I, I got a delegation from some of the band members saying, look, Barry doesn't understand the band enough. He doesn't understand the music. He doesn't understand all the, the, the Celtic tunes and the songs. We want you to to direct the musicians and, and take over. So bit, little by little, I did that. Uh, and with Barry's permission, uh, and then we had a, a month's break, which Barry had insisted on. He said, you, you, you'll thank me for this break. Uh, and uh, during the break, we fired him. So he probably didn't thank us. Why was he fired? You well, just felt we didn't need him anymore? Exactly that, yes. Yeah. Because I had taken over dealing with the, the band during the overdubs and, and it would be me that was always talking to them over the intercom or me that was making the decisions about whether they should do it again or stick with this or whatever. Uh, and while well, Barry was sort of supporting me from behind. Yeah. But when we took the break, we put our heads together and we realised we just we don't really need Barry. We can go without him and, and spare him another three months in an Irish cottage. Like, Was there any interference from like London, from the label? No, they'd learned their lesson by then. From the, from the previous record? Yeah. Just let them at it? Yeah, for the previous two records, yeah. yeah. Would they have been requesting playbacks every now and again or...? or... No. Um, a, a, a nice man called Paul Conroy from Chrysalis Records came out and visited us for a couple of days with his son. And they hung around the studio and they listened to some stuff in the control room. I don't remember any formal playback, but, but he was there and we were working on several songs and he got a flavour of things. And then he went off and he seemed happy enough. Uh, and that was it. I think then... You're back on the road, you're playing gigs. And there's then sometime July, maybe 1990, you go down to Waterford to take the photographs for, yeah. for, the, for the cover of the album. Down in Tromore, where, you know, it's a seaside town with loads of uh, Murrays, as we say. There's that gorgeous photo taken on the waltzer. Years later, the significance of that came back to you. Yeah, well, it was McCormick's Funfair in Tromore. Uh, and it was the idea of Steve Wickham's girlfriend who was an art designer and she was doing the sleeve and she wanted, she, she'd she heard a couple of the tracks from the album and she thought they conjured a fairground sound. So she wanted to take pictures of us on a fairground and, and the waltzer was the obvious choice. And, and I liked the idea because it was like we'd been on this one year roller coaster ride together and the waltzer seemed to symbolise that. So she put us in the waltzer and we did the photographs and, and, and on the top of the waltzer said McCormick's waltzer, very grand sign. And, and sadly, the, the yeah, that was airbrushed out and replaced by the Water Boys, of course, because it had to say us in the album title. But uh, years later, I was I was looking through the the photos. The record company sent me some photos because we were we were reissuing Room to Roam, and there were the original photos from Tremor, and it was McCormick's waltzer, and I, and I kept thinking McCormick because it reminded me of something. And then I remembered this email that my dad had sent me at New Year two thousand and eight to nine. And he, my dad was an archivist and he was great at researching family history. And he'd gone back into, into his family, the Scots, and he'd found that they had ancestors who'd come from Ulster and they were McCormick's. And he'd explained all this in his email. And that's what the picture was reminding me of. 
And when, when I, I went back and looked at my dad's email, that was McCorm Isabella McCormick, my great, great, great grandmother. And then I looked at the pictures of McCormick's waltzer and I thought, bloody hell, I was McCormick. There it was. Yeah. Nice bit of karmic magic there. It's lovely, isn't yeah. it? It's lovely. It's fair to say, you say it yourself in the book that accompanies the box set, Mike, that the reviews were kind of just fair to Midland when, when oh, Room to Rome came man. out. Even worse, man. Yeah. I remember the three British music papers really didn't like it at all. I was looking back and the opening of the Melody Maker review simply said, oh dear, <laughs> oh dear, <laughs> let's establish this from the start. This is not the Waterboys record we've been waiting for. And then, you know, and then it, and then it gets worse. But you kind of go, wow, you know, they just didn't understand the record is. I don't think they did, actually. I don't think they they had the, the musical breadth to take in that we could go that way. But I will say this also, I think the record had its faults. Uh, and some of the criticism I thought was justified. And, and when I look back in the record now, I mean, I'm glad we've been able to put out five, five album box set because that tells much more of the story. Room to Rome is just a sliver of what we did. And it wasn't necessarily the best songs or the best recordings. And my singing was weak, I think, on that album because I was burned out and I'd been smoking for years and a year on the road. My voice wasn't as strong as it yeah. was. I stopped smoking after Room to Rome and my voice came back. So I think some of the criticism was justified. And I think also they, they didn't understand, too. Yeah. So going back, going through all those tapes has been a positive exercise, I take it, for you. So, Mike, really? Yeah, do you know, the, the tour that we did in 89 with that band, the, the tour that you, your correspondents were writing about, I remember that the shows being very exciting, but I always thought we when, when I listened back to the, the, the recordings that actually it was more on the night it was magic and then when i listened back to the tapes i would think nah i don't think that's so good but listening to them now from 30 years later i was very pleasantly surprised how good they were and how tough the band was at times and there's that one track where we do uh, van morrison's sweet thing and then we go into the beatles blackbird and then we go into the stones can't always get what you want i'd forgotten we even used to do that and that was absolutely beautiful, about 50 minutes long and, and full of emotion. John Dunford told Graham Thompson recently in that Uncut feature, Mike saw Room to Roam as maybe the Waterboys' Sergeant Pepper. Anything was allowed. There were no rules. Yeah. I, 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 I was trying to make a kind of pop meets trad Sergeant Pepper, yeah. Yeah. Rooted in the British Isles in Ireland. Yeah. I, you know, as a young fella, something like Island Man was very affecting as a young fella hearing it in Cork in October 1990. That that really spoke to me, you know, the version of Raggle Taggle. I mean, these things. But like maybe that's because being Irish, we saw the album differently, I'm assuming, you know. Popular in Scotland, too. This seven piece didn't last, though. As I said at the outset there, Mike, the version of the band I saw then in late 1990 when I was telling my friend Podrick that that's the version I'd seen, he said, oh, you mean the heavy metal water voice? And <laughs> he was saying when the trad elements were shorn that, you know, that it was a much harder sound. And he was right there, you know? Yeah, well, you, you probably know the story if you've read the book that, that we wanted to. It was Anto and me and Trevor, the three of us. Anto was our Saxon mandolin man. Yeah. 
there. Uh, we started rehearsing and Noel Bridgman was our drummer, but his drumming was gentle. And, and that had been the thing that attracted us in the first place, his warm, gentle sound. And suddenly it didn't feel right. We wanted a tougher sound. And we made the mistake of, of splitting with Noel, firing him uh, without discussing it with Steve Wickham, who was the other senior member of the band. Uh, and Steve was going through a lot at the time. And we thought, well, okay, let's spare him a nasty decision. And it was a, it was a mistake. Uh, and he was very upset and he left the band. So two men down, Noel Bridgman and Steve Wickham. And we had a couple of rehearsals with Colin and Sharon to see if it was still going to work. And without Wickham's fiddle, uh, it didn't work with the more trad players. Probably Ooh. being drowned out by a harder drummer as well, I assume. Mm, I think Sharon could have held her own, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, but Steve had been the glue that held the, the folk side and the rock side together. And with him gone, it couldn't work. So Colin and Sharon left. And we brought in this drummer that Anto and Trevor had spotted called Ken Blevins. He played with John Hyatt. And he came in, he was a really good... He wasn't a heavy metal drummer, and he's a good rootsy rock drummer, but he, he was tougher than Noel Bridgman. Uh, and the sound was okay, but of course we couldn't play any of Room to Roam because we didn't have the fiddle, we didn't have the flute or the accordion. Uh, and most of the songs in Room to Roam didn't really suit a four-piece lineup. Uh, it was a very tough tour. Wickham said he would, he, he said, look, I'll stay for, for six weeks if you want me to. I could have taken him up on that, but then I thought he's going to leave halfway through the tour. Uh, uh, we might as well get used to it now. Yeah, yeah. Whilst you were putting this box together then, Mike, Noel Bridgman sadly passed away I, earlier on this year in March. So so that must have been very poignant, you know, as this happened while you were kind of in the middle of kind of putting this box out to bed, so to speak. Yes, indeed. I'm very glad that we worked on it in time so that he was able to be involved because it put me and him back in touch. The last time I'd seen him was about six years ago when I bumped into him at a gig. And we always got on very well after the Waterboys. In fact, we worked together in 91 on, on some recordings. But anyway, I hadn't seen him for some years uh, and I wanted to tell his story in the book. So I phoned him up and I said, look, I want to know all about your early career. Can I interview you? So we arranged a time and I had my, had my phone set on voice recorder and I interviewed him. And it was really wonderful. All the things that I'd always wanted to ask Noel Bridgman that I'd never known. You know, I knew about Skid Row and Brush Shields and so on. And I knew he was a great singer because I'd heard him sing with us. But I didn't know how he started in music, what other bands he played with. And... And it was very interesting to find that when we first met him, which was 86, I had the impression that he was this really experienced, serious Irish session dude, sort of Irish Jim Keltner or Steve Gadd. And he was telling me that he wasn't used to doing sessions at all. He thought we were used to doing sessions. It was very funny. And I'm also very glad that that he saw what, what I wrote about him in the book, about how yeah. much effect he had on me personally and on the band because he was the first musician who taught me that less is more and you don't need to be heroic as a drummer you don't need to be bam crash crash you can say it all just by slowing down for a second and changing your emphasis and and it wasn't just a music lesson it was a life lesson for me that I got from Noel Bridgman. Brilliant brilliant Mike when you were going back what are the standout tracks on Room to Rome for you you know? On the original album. Yeah. I'm sorry to say that I think most in most cases, rough mixes were better. There's a lovely track called Bigger Picture. 
and yeah. there's a rough mix of it in the box set that's absolutely beautiful. But somehow we didn't we didn't get the magic on the album version. Maybe we're trying too hard. Or I don't know. Maybe you get too compressed or too too treated. But the rough mixes are, are all tougher. Who made those decisions? Was that on your shoulders back in the day well, to make those? Idiot must have come in and made those decisions. Me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Me and Tim Martin. We were the team. You need space, I suppose, in order to uh, to make those kind of decisions, don't you? When you you know, yeah. because there's so many recordings there. Which track gets chosen? Which version of which track? Which take? Well, we had a playback for some of the band halfway through the mixes, and I remember Anto sitting there in the control room at Spittle House, and his face just got longer and longer. And at the end, he said, "I thought these were great in the rough mixes. What have you done to them?" And and at the time. Tim and I thought they were good. We thought it was sounding right and didn't really listen to him. But now when I listen, Anto was right, man. I seem to remember by the end of 1990, I think, didn't the record company, didn't Ensign kind of rush release a best of the Waterboys kind of within a few months of, of Room to Roam? Nine months later. Yeah. Like to me, looking at that, it was a real, it was the record company kind of saying, right, that album's dead in the water. So, so let's, let's kind of go back to the back catalog and push that further. Well, they didn't put a single from Room to Rome, which is yeah. a really weird move. How long will I love you? Then you know, it's become a big hit single now with Ellie Golding's version. And, and we could have had the hit in 1990 if they put it out or maybe Raggle Taggle Gypsy as well. Those were the two that were designed as singles. And, and at the same time as that, The Hole of the Moon, which hadn't been a hit in the UK the first time, was becoming a, a big record on the rave scene. You know? It's a cult record. And so they knew that they knew they could have some success if they, if they waited for that. Not that I'm complaining. Very proud that it was such a big hit. Absolutely. And it was lovely, wasn't it? That Ellie Golding version must have brought a whole new generation back to the original, you would imagine. You'd think so, but I think when we play How Long Will I Love You Live, some people think we're doing an album. No, no. <laughs> I don't mind. I don't mind. I'm delighted it's a hit. And did you see it on Strictly? Did you see the, the couple? Yeah. Of Beautiful. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, those moments must be kind of surreal, are they, when you see that kind of thing? Now, I'm used to songs. When, once you release a song, out into the world. You never know what's going to happen with it. Some weird, wonderful things happen with my songs, and, uh, and I'm cool with it. Do you just kind of have to let them go almost, Mike, you know, let them fly? Yeah, it's not only cover versions, it's also the way people interpret them. People, There's as many interpretations as ears to hear. Yeah, yeah. Come here, you've a new album. Um, I know you've a new album finished, and it's due out, I think, uh, in the first couple of months of the new year, isn't it? April 22, and it's called All Souls Hill. Okay, will you tell me about that? Was that done in Dublin or London, or, or like, where did you do that? I did it in my home studio last summer. The summer just passed. Yeah. And a lot of the, the tracks were done in collaboration with a, a, an English producer called Simon Dine. He's from Manchester. He'd done a lot of work with Paul Weller. And, and what he does is he, he makes these mashup tracks, and then he sends me them. And I listen, and, and out of every bunch that he sends me, there's one or two that I think, oh, hang on, I've got an idea for that. And then I follow the idea and then then finish up the track, and they end up with kind of collaborations between me and him. And the other water boys come in and do overdubs and so on. Was that so a very different way of working for you, Mike? To, to... It's a good lockdown way of working. Yeah, uh, It's not that different. Since, since the technology evolved, it's amazing what you can do with a home studio and email. 
you know, I'll send a track to, to our drummer and he's got his, his own home studio, Ralph, uh, and he'll, he'll add the drums there. There's also a drummer I use in Nashville called Greg Morrow and he does the drums in his home studio, sends them back to me. It's a wonderful way of working. Of course, there's nothing quite like being in a room together. In the same room, yeah. And there's a big tour, like I know there's a load of tour dates scheduled for kind of the middle of the middle of next year and all yeah, that. There's festivals and then hopefully a tour of Europe and America, but just in this weird time yeah. when we see it. I normally get people to introduce a track, but I'm going to be mean and I'm going to go, is it okay if I pick the track off Room to Roam? Of course. And I'd love you to maybe tell me about it because I think Further Up, Further In is, for me, the song that kind of sums up this period. It's got the real spirit of that seven-piece band, Mike. Maybe you might tell me about it. Well, that song began in a doorway in Kinvara on a May morning in 1989. I'd just met Sharon Shannon and I'd been in this little hotel in Gimvara that she'd invited me to and we'd been up all night playing music. And she was in a, in a room, a little parlor at the front playing with Steve Cooney, the great guitar player. I don't think they even knew I was still up. It was dawn. And I was standing in the doorway listening to them playing this tune, this magical Scottish sounding tune and Sharon's accordion sending these peals of sound across the morning. It was one of the most beautiful sounds I'd ever heard. And it was a very magical West of Ireland morning. There was a light rain falling. There was a corrugated iron roof nearby. So there was that pitter patter and the sense of the sleeping town around me and this beautiful tune. And the tune seemed to suggest to me centuries of Scotland that took me back to my own my own land and yet it was centuries of Ireland too it was it was a most amazing amazing thing and and when I when I got back home I tried to remember the tune and teach myself how to play it on the piano I've even got a, a cassette recording of me playing it all wrong because I hadn't remembered it right and so when Sharon joined the band which was about three weeks later I said, you know, I, I was in Kinvara and I was standing in the door when you were playing that tune with Cooney. Oh, what tune was that? She said, so I sang her a bit. And she said, oh, that Roach's favourite, she said. And I said, will you record it for me? So she, she put it down in the cassette, which I also still have. And I, I learned it from that. And it was one of the first tunes we played with the Seven Piece Band when Sharon came to rehearsals. And we did a very beautiful band instrumental version, which is on the first CD of the box set under the title, Roach's Favourite. And I loved the tune so much, I wanted to put, put words to it. And, and, and I had this phrase further up, further in, which was from a C.S. Lewis book called The Last Battle. And it seemed further up, further, it went with the tune. So I spent a few weeks working on the lyrics, uh, played it live maybe once and didn't like how I'd got it. So I went and refined it, uh, corrected it. And eventually it was ready. And uh, it was one verse for each member of the band. Uh, first verse was Anto, and so on. It's all in the book. And uh, we recorded it in Fintorn. It was one of the ones where Barry Beckett broke the band up. It was recorded by me, Noel, and Trevor as a, a three-man version. I think I sang it live, but I think I went and redid the vocal again later. And then we recorded the, the box, the flute, or was it whistle? Box, whistle, mandolin, and fiddle. As, a, as an ensemble together, so that they would at least be playing live with each other as they overdubbed. And, and that was the way it was on the album. Of course, when the band broke up, it was impossible for us to ever play it again because we didn't have that, that band. But it, one of my favourites as well. 
Oh, it's my favourite off Room to Rome. I've always loved it. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you about this record. It was the only CD we had for three months in our house. So uh, we kind of played it to death, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, it's been brilliant going back through all this um, demos, rehearsal, all the stuff. It's been brilliant. And uh, the box, I think it's called the Magnificent Seven, yep. T9 to like 1990. Yeah, and the Magnificent Seven was the name Noel Bridgman gave to that band. Well, it's a nice tribute to Noel then as well, isn't it? Mike, it's been lovely chatting to you. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure. Farewell. Cheers, Sloan.
wherever I roam I thought I was an hour or a year behind But the hours and the years are only time Further up, further in Thanks again to Mike Scott. The Magnificent Seven, The Water Boys, Fisherman's Blues, Room to Roam Band, 1989-1990, to is out now. I also want to thank my old friends Jim O'Mahony and Padraig Collins, who shared their recollections of witnessing The Water Boys back in 1989 at the majestic ballroom in Mallow County Cork and Croom Community Hall, Croom County Limerick. So if you go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter, you'll find links to the episode notes with further information. And if you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe, like and share. Now I have a few more episodes confirmed. So here's a promo in the form of a pop quiz intros round. I thought the time had come for me to die Here Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, a Learn and Sing production. So there you go. A short preview of the next couple of episodes. Episode 11 will be out in a few weeks' time.
The theme music is Irish Rhapsody Redux. It's by Mark Healy, and it's his reworking of a recording of the New Light Symphony Orchestra's 1930 version of Victor Herbert's Irish Rhapsody. Until the next episode, goodbye.